0: And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, WORT installed some much-needed new equipment today and planned a station-wide power outage to make it happen.
1: A prison reform organizer discusses the ongoing lockdown at Waupon Correctional Institution.
0: And in the second half, a neonatal ICU nurse shares some perspective on her high-pressure career, all the details in the weather, of course, and we'll revisit November of 1969. Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
1: Today in Washington, Senators Tammy Baldwin and Jerry Moran introduced bipartisan (laughs) legislation to acknowledge the contribution of Southeast Asian diasporas in the Vietnam War. The Legacies of War Recognition and Unexploded Ordinances Removal Act recognizes the many members of the South South Asian diaspora that aided U.S. soldiers and refugees during the Vietnam War. The legislation also authorizes funding for the removal of landmines and unexploded ordinances, as well as programs to support those injured by landmines and other legacies of war. The latter part of the act is hoped to aid those in areas like Laos where an estimated 50,000 civilians have been injured from millions of leftover unexploded ordinances and in Cambodia, which has one of the highest rates of landmine and unexploded ordnance causing casualties in the world. Those of the region being recognized by the act include the Hmong people, whose third highest population is right here in Wisconsin.
0: In an effort to stem conspiracy theories and ease crunches on election night, Wisconsin lawmakers are considering a bill that would allow clerks to process absentee ballots the day before an election. Advocates say the so-called Monday processing bill could help increase the efficiency of ballot counting and help stem the strain on poll workers and clerks during an election. Currently, clerks cannot begin counting absentee ballots early. If you vote early, that absentee ballot is kept sealed until at least 7 a.m. on Election Day. And it could be kept sealed well into the wee hours after polls have closed until election workers are finally able to make their way through counting all the ballots. The change could ease the volume of votes counted on election night and reduce the size of late-night and early-morning vote batches that are updated, sometimes until the morning after an election. In the past, the delayed processing of those batches of ballots has caused confusion and even allegations of election fraud. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the bill could be a bipartisan reality with legislators on both sides sold on the idea of removing doubts about the appearance of votes totals during elections.
1: And in more election procedure news, Wisconsin lawmakers have shifted their focus to the matter of how close observers would be able to stand to voters and poll workers during the 2024 elections. Currently, Wisconsin state law requires observers to stand between three to eight feet away from a voter or poll worker. That could soon change ahead of the 2024 presidential election. Both the legislature and the Wisconsin Elections Commission could be poised to allow observers to stand within three feet of voters and poll workers. Opponents say that could lead to more intimidation or harassment of voters and of election workers.
0: State Democratic lawmakers have introduced an expansive package of health care bills that would expand access to Medicaid and BadgerCare, aim to lower prescription drug costs and create a safety net for insulin supplies. That's according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Perhaps the most significant proposal would accept an expansion to Medicaid, making Wisconsin eligible for additional federal funds for the program. And that could save the state billions of dollars, quite literally. A memo from analysts at the Nonpartisan Budget Office shows that not expanding Medicaid has cost Wisconsin more than $2 billion in about the last decade. And Wisconsin is just one of 10 states that has not expanded Medicaid since the Affordable Care Act. The bills are unlikely to find significant bipartisan support in the state legislature. Republicans have rejected appeals to expand eligibility for Medicaid, saying it amounts to welfare.
1: UW-Madison officials are pushing back against what they describe as significantly exaggerated allegations of anti-Semitism at a protest last week. That's as claims that protesters stomped on and cut up an Israeli flag and uttered violent anti-Semitic language at a recent protest outside of UW Hillel, a Jewish center near the UW campus. Those claims gathered fuel thanks in part to conservative commentator Dana Loesch, who posted the allegations to Twitter, or X, on Monday. Today, in a statement posted online, UW-Madison officials clarified that eyewitness accounts and reports from campus police do not support any claims of violence, direct threats, or the cutting of a flag at that protest. The statement clarifies that several students were escorted into Hillel during the protest. Officials also urged caution and a critical eye towards social media posts and condemned anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in equal measure.
0: As the clock ticks down to an implementation of a change to school start and dismissal times for many Madison schools, district officials are facing a welter of criticism from families. Interim, director, super in, inter, pardon me, interim District Superintendent Lisa Kvistad weighed in on the subject for the first time publicly on Monday during a school board meeting, reports the Capitol Times. There, she described the district's decision to change start and dismissal times, which was done without the permission of Madison School Board, as, quote, not our first choice. The announcement from the district that school hours would change for more than two dozen Madison Elementary and Middle schools came at the start of last week. The change is slated to a take effect Monday. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of today's top stories. As of
1: about 2 p.m. today, WORT is broadcasting live on your airwaves with a new suppressor to protect us from potential power surges. That switch took out our station's power for several hours, but we stayed on the airwaves anyway. Tom Jones is WORT's Technology and Facilities Director, and he handled that update. He took some time out of this unusually busy day to speak with WORT news producer Faye Parks. Here's what he has this. What he has to say about our station's new suppressor and some new equipment we'll be installing soon. Thanks for joining me, Tom.
2: Anytime.
3: So you've been very busy running around the station today. What kind of updates did you put in place?
2: It's been a crazy day. Hill Electric was here today, and they pulled out an isolation transformer that was down in the basement since sometime in the 80s, probably. And then they installed a surge suppressor up by the electrical panel and master control, which basically controls all of our audio gear. Said if we get hit with a surge, it should all be protected now. Something long overdue. But in order to put that in place, obviously, we had to shut all the power off. So we couldn't we couldn't build radio from here.
4: In
3: the event that a surge happened, we would be prepared. Was that mainly why you did the update?
2: That was the the reason today of doing that update.
3: And did we get new soundboards, too? Is that right?
2: New sound boards are here. They're not in place yet. Sometime mid-January, it looks like we'll probably put the first ones in place in combo A. Still trying to nail down the date because we have a lot of people to train on how to use them. It's a whole progression. Somebody has to be trained to train other people to train other people, and we have a lot of work to do there. But the boards will be in place then, but this was not necessarily part of that. It was just to protect all the new equipment we have coming in in case we have a surge It's something we did not have before
3: so would we need a planned outage in january too
2: no well not for electrical we will have to be down for the weekend while we rip out the old boards and put in the new boards and then make sure everything is working combo a should be good over a weekend because that studio doesn't get used much on the weekends so it should be clear to be able to do that combo b will be a little more difficult when we finally do that one some weeks later because that one does get used a lot on the weekends. So we'll deal with that as we get to it.
3: So it sounds like we'll manage to be on the air then. We managed it today too. Can you explain to the listeners how that's possible?
2: Today it was fun. We had the shows pre-recorded and we played them from directly at the transmitter site. And had an encoding system, which also fed our streaming servers so that people could still listen to us on the WRT app, available on Google Play and Apple Store. And so that's how we were able to stay on the air today, even though the station here at, on Bedford Street was down. Coming up, when we put the new boards in place, that'll be a different thing because we'll be broadcasting out of Combo B while we're working in Combo A, so we'll still be working here just fine.
3: So when people hear power outage, it kind of has this connotation that was an accident. But this took a lot of planning and any more changes we do in the future will take a lot of planning. So what does that look like behind the scenes?
2: Stress, panic, terror. That about sums it up. It is a lot of planning just to make sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible. And then you wait. And then finally, it's down to like one minute before you have to switch everything over to the backup plan. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, it works fine. Then when the power came back on today, then we had major panic attacks because one of our crown amps blew out because of the power coming back on. Old amp, so what happened? Had another server that didn't come back on properly, so there was a lot of panic for a little while. But right now, we're on stable ground. I'm breathing normally again, and everything should be good.
3: When it comes to radio, people see it as sort of the trusted source that will never go away, even if there's some kind of disaster, like what have you, whatever happens, there will always be something broadcasting. Is that still true now for WORT, even with these updates?
2: Yeah. Actually, it's probably even more true than it had, was for previous years, because we now have two internet connections to our transmitter from here. We also have a digital microwave signal from here to the transmitter. Plus, we can always transmit right at the transmitter. We can fire up files. We can even put a soundboard and microphones at the transmitter site as well. So we have multiple ways of staying on the air. If the entire city of Madison goes away, no, then we won't be able to do much of anything.
3: Thanks again for agreeing to speak with me, Tom.
2: Thanks for inviting me.
3: That was Tom Jones, WORT's own Technology and Facilities Director. Today, he guided our station through challenging waters as we handled a planned power outage to protect our equipment from power surges.
0: Another inmate at WAPUN Correctional Institution died on Monday, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. That's the third death at the prison since officials instituted a lockdown in March. Late last month, 10 inmates at WAPUN filed a class action lawsuit against several corrections officials and staff alleging that the prison's living conditions constitute cruel and unusual punishment. The group MOSES, short for Madison Organizing in Strength, Equity, and Solidarity, is a nonpartisan grassroots organization that advocates for systemic change to criminal justice in Wisconsin. James Morgan is the community organizer for MOSES, and he spoke to our producer, Faye Parks, earlier today.
3: Thank you for joining me, James.
0: Oh, no problem. No problem.
3: Can you give us some background on the lockdown at
5: Waupon? Well, those lockdowns now have been in effect for approximately seven months, starting back in March of this year. What we hear from the Department of Corrections is that those were initiated due to attacks on staff and other individuals within the correctional system. However, we have never gotten a direct response concerning that portion of, you know, why those lockdowns were instituted.
3: What kind of sentences are people generally serving out there? And for what crimes?
5: Well, correctional institution is a maximum security prison. And so you have individuals there who are classified maximum And sometimes that may include someone who's initially a medium security or minimum security persons who have been transferred there for what other institutions may have called disruptive behavior and things of that nature. But it is a maximum security institution. I was housed in Waupon Correctional Institution in the 80s. And so, you know, I'm kind of aware of those conditions within that institution. It's one of the oldest in the state of Wisconsin. And even then, you know, it was in need of of repairs, remodeling, and the conditions in there generally mean that individuals are in a lockdown state, but not to the degree that they exist at this point. It was never 23 or 24 hours a day.
3: And I've heard that similar lockdowns are in place at other facilities across the state. Can you walk me through some of those?
5: Yeah, what we're finding out is that WAPON Correctional and we have Stanley Correctional, which is on lockdown, which the Department of Corrections called Modified Movement. We understand that we have similar conditions at Portage, at Columbia Correctional. Yes, there are a number of them that are experiencing modified movement or lockdowns. The reason that's being given really is lack of staff. They don't have adequate staffing at these institutions and having talked to some correctional officers, it's a situation where it's difficult for them as well. Working eight, 16-hour days, you know, mandatorily being shipped from one institution to another, so it's impacting their families and their ability to be professional in their jobs as well.
3: So there was a recent report that another inmate at Wapan died on Monday, the third since lockdown started in March. The first death occurred in June and was ruled a suicide. And the second in early October is still under investigation. These untimely deaths point to the living conditions at the facility. So can you tell us more about that?
5: Well, what we're hearing, and this is the stance of the Department of Corrections, they're saying that there's no direct link. However, we know that, you know, individuals... Just like people in the general public experience mental health issues, you know, physical ailments, a lot of things goes on. So that becomes an issue of whether or not the standard of care is being delivered in a way that allows individuals to get the stated treatment that they need and the ongoing treatment that they need to be able to manage. What we don't know is whether or not, because we're not, we don't have access to autopsy reports and those types of things. So we don't know whether or not, you know, an issue where a person was denied their medication or if they were just simply ignored when they were trying to get the attention of staff to get the required help that they needed. But again, we've talked to some family members. We held a protest outside of Walpong Correctional a week ago, actually, I believe, and talked to some of those family members. And according to them, you know, their loved ones were functional. They were doing well prior to these modified movement conditions and lockdowns. So we're interested in finding out more as this situation moves forward.
3: So when it comes to mental health care, I actually attended the rally that you guys hosted outside of the state capitol a few weeks ago. Someone mentioned that it's also a case of there just not being access to mental health services. So their understanding or their perspective at the rally Mm -hmm. was mental health issues aren't addressed until after a suicide occurs.
5: Again, it's a standard of care. I personally spent a number of years, two decades plus, in the Wisconsin prison system. And one of the barriers to mental health or access to mental health is that there's a standard whereby if an individual is experiencing mental health issues. And finds a way to have those addressed by a psychologist or a psychologist who is hired by the state of Wisconsin. Information that is shared, you know, we we know about HIPAA laws and things of that nature. But sometimes that information ends up being used against an individual as they go through the correction system. It will be used to deny them lower security status. It will be used to disallow them to participate in certain programming and different things of that nature. So it's difficult when individuals are experiencing or going through episodes, the immediate response is to put them in segregation status. That may be what they call temporary lockup, or it may be addressed as, you know, segregation. And, you know, there's very limited access to mental health. You may have someone come and visit you once or twice a week to ask how you're doing or, you know, give you a medication, but then there's no continuation of care. So this is not something that's recent. This is something that is historical within the Department of Corrections. And so, again, we look to get the public at large to begin to shine a lens, so to speak, on these conditions and issues that are going on within the corrections system, and particularly since we know that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated at some point will be returning to the community. And our goal is to see them return as healthy individuals, as healthy people.
3: Another allegation that I've heard about the living conditions at Waupun is that it's quite unsanitary. Can you tell me more about that?
5: The age of the facility means that there's going to be at least a degree to which, you know, upkeep of the facility is deteriorating. That's natural. I can't speak directly to that at this point, but having been in lockdown situations, there's staff generally who, because the prisoners are in lockdown status, then it's left to the staff to keep the facility clean. There may be a few individuals who are allowed. They are called caretenders or janitors, so to speak, that are allowed out of their cells. And they may be individuals who are picking up garbage, sweeping, mopping, delivering cleaning supplies to people who are in those cells. But then again, I don't know to what degree or what the timeline is for when that may or may not be happening. Given a lockdown situation, it would be logical to allow individuals to do that on a daily basis or every other day basis. Seeing is that you have sometimes two individuals occupying a six by nine space.
3: And as you mentioned, Wapon is an older facility. So there are rumors and testimony that there's also vermin within the facility, bats, that kind of thing.
5: Yes, I've heard about that, and uh, to me, there's a degree of believability to that, because even in some of the more modern institutions, I was housed at Columbia Correctional at one point, and when they built that facility, somehow, some someway, <laughs> uh, the screens on the windows weren't secured, and we often encountered bats in our living quarters. And, you know, again, Wapan is a very, very old institution. I've been in the basement of that facility, and so to say that there are very in there, I have no doubt that there is. And again, if the conditions and the cleaning conditions have deteriorated to a degree that's unacceptable and unhealthy for everyone, I truly believe that that's a factual report.
3: On October 23rd, 10 inmates at Waupun actually filed a class action lawsuit against Wisconsin's DOJ. What can you yeah. tell us about that lawsuit?
5: Well, I know that there are 10 plaintiffs on that lawsuit, and that is filed as a class action, so that includes individuals who are similarly situated at that institution. I know that that doesn't include, for example, Green Bay or some of the other institutions who are experiencing those conditions. There are five defendants, one, which is the Department of Corrections Secretary Carr, the Deputy warden, Assistant Deputy Warden, and others. And again, that lawsuit, the basis for it is the conditions of, of confinement. We're talking about access to health care, mental health care, adequate diets, access to exercise and things of, of that nature. So, you know, it covers at least five different components of the conditions that exist in that institution at this particular point in time. I made an attempt yesterday to call and have a conversation with the attorney who filed the lawsuit. And so right now I haven't got a call back and I'm waiting to have a deeper conversation with him on what it is that they are seeking. I know that they're seeking to have those conditions changed sooner rather than later, and this may be the process that requires the Department of Corrections to immediately begin to make those changes so that that environment is safe for everyone who has to be there, the prisoners as well as the individuals who have to work in that environment.
3: It sounds like one of the most immediate goals would be to end this seven-month-plus lockdown at Wapon. Is that right? Yes.
5: Yes. And, you know, when we held the rally at the Capitol, we submitted a letter to the governor, which outlines some of the potential things that could be done to assist in the ending of those lockdowns. It's an emergency situation. As you stated, when individuals get to the point where they're suicidal or taking their own lives, that's an emergency situation and circumstance. So, you know, one of our things was, or one of our calls initially was, you know, why not bring in the National Guard to ensure safety and security where movement could begin within the institution in and of itself. Again, we know that there are staffing problems that would at least temporarily take care of the staffing problems until they could get staff hired and trained appropriately to be in there so that it's a functional running institution that considers the health and safety of everyone. So there are things that can be implemented and done. Unfortunately, we're not getting any responses from Secretary Carr. We're not getting any responses from the governor. And in situations like this, historically, it has taken the courts to require that these institutions meet the requirements so that we are not talking about Eighth Amendment violations of cruel and unusual punishment. The punishment is being sent to prison. I know that there's a lot going on in our culture, and indeed there's a lot going on in our world. We're looking at helping set a foundation for a a space where we can hold accountable individuals who violate the social contract, but we also want to look at how we can in some ways build a roadmap, so to speak, where when those individuals are ready to return to society that they can do those things in a healthy way.
3: Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, James.
5: Well, thank you.
3: That was James Morgan of Moses, a Madison-based criminal justice advocacy group.
0: The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: On this week's edition of Madison's Backbone... Feature contributor Riley Cutright has more from Jen, a NICU nurse. They'll dive deeper into the emotional challenges and rewards of the job, and you'll find out how these professionals stay resilient through the joys and heartbreaks of nursing the city's smallest patients. But I would say my favorite moment in my job
6: is the first time a family gets to hold their baby. Uh,
4: A community is a body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. Last time on Madison's Backbone, we talked with Jen about the life of a NICU nurse. We talked about unconventional work hours, education, and the sacrifices made to work with babies. If you missed the first episode, don't fret. I'm here with round two. This week, we are going to dig a little deeper into the joys and challenges of this profession. What kind of advice would you give to a fresh person starting their first day at the NICU? Don't be afraid to ask questions.
6: We all have them. Nobody's expecting you to know all the answers. And it's actually scarier when you have somebody that comes into an extremely specialized position and doesn't ask us, you know, what does this mean? Or how do I know this, that or the third? And we are, you know, juggling a lot of things sometimes, especially if you have a critical baby. You have to find your person. And and if it's one person or a group of people that you feel comfortable going to when you ask questions, go to those people and and seek them out. And and also, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone and seek out educational experiences. If there's something that you haven't done before that you really want to see, talk to the nurse taking care of the baby and see if you can be a part of it. Or talk to the charge nurse and see if you're able to maybe be paired with that person for the night so you can go in and see some of those things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see on a regular basis. What is... Your favorite part of your job? The easy answer would be watching moms and dads become parents. But I would say my most, like my favorite moment in my job is the first time a family gets to hold their baby. Ugh. That is so beautiful and I get to be a part of this very intimate, very love-filled moment. And and sometimes, you know, it's a double-edged sword and something really terrible might be happening. Like this might be the first and last time a mom gets to hold their baby, but most days are good days in the NICU. And I mean, (laughs) I've got, so I know she won't mind me telling you about it because um, there's this mom that I stayed connected with after her son left us and left the NICU and is big and healthy and doing very well. But he was very, very sick for a very long time. And she actually, with her husband, celebrates something called Kiss Day. And it's the very first time they ever got to kiss their baby. Mm -hmm. It was weeks after he was born. And I had come in and was getting ready to start my shift. And I knew I had to change the linen in his bed. And I said, hey, you guys, I know you're about to head out, but do you want to give him a kiss before you leave? I have to open up the bed anyway. And they looked at me confused, like, you, with our mouths, we can touch our, our baby. And I was like, yeah, absolutely, get in here. And they still, to this day, he's, I think, turning six this year. To this day, every year, they celebrate the first time they ever got to kiss their baby. And I got to be a part of that moment.
4: I'm sure that this line of work is really rewarding.
6: It is. It is yeah. sometimes really, really hard. Sometimes we don't get to save our patients. Right. Sometimes they don't make it for one reason or another. And that's probably my least favorite part of my job is, is the patients that don't make it. And it takes a toll on everybody who's ever been in that patient's life, whether you've only taken care of them for a day or whether you've been with them for their entire journey. Having to say goodbye to anybody that you've cared so much about is really hard. But like I said before, most days are good days. Most days I get to tell families that we got to go down on support or their baby took their first bottle or you get to hold your baby today for the first time. And those are the moments that I hold on to, especially in the hard moments. And I look back on things like his Day and I get to remember all the good parts of my job and, and how I can have a huge impact on a family, even if I'm only with them for a little while. And so I, I feel really, really lucky and happy and, and fortunate to have that part of my job as well. One of the other least favorite things that I have, if moms do any illicit substances during their pregnancy, it can actually affect the baby after they're born. And mm-hmm. so that's really hard. But. One of the things that was hard for me specifically is dealing with my own internal bias. And when I hadn't necessarily interacted with that group of people before I started working in the NICU, um, it certainly was something that was eye-opening after I started working in the NICU. And, you know, some of these families, it's not that they were making a choice because they wanted to hurt their baby or anything like that. And so dealing with my own personal bias of of saying, "Okay, this person did this thing and it is negatively impacting their child, but they did it not because they wanted to hurt their baby in any way or maybe they didn't even know that it was going to going to impact them um, has been, I mean, challenging, but also rewarding for me, like being able to overcome some of that bias and and see that there are people out there that have either made mistakes or you know it's it's something that they're struggling with and and being able to be there and help them through it has been really incredible. And and it's helped me, I think, a lot grow as a person just because I now have a completely different viewpoint than I did when I started as a nurse. It's, I mean, it's still challenging. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's hard when you have a, a baby that's going through withdrawal and, and they're miserable and there's not a whole lot you can do for them, but also being able to see families really step up to the plate and moms knock it out of the park and be able to take their kiddos home and watch them get clean and, and get through it with their baby. I mean, it's that's also super, super rewarding, but it is a very challenging part of my job.
4: Yeah, I just feel like that your job impacts so many people in ways that I definitely never would have thought about. If you're a listener and you think that you're passionate about people in ways that they don't even imagine, maybe being a NICU nurse is for you. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, and I mean women women and children's in general is so special and and getting to be a part of someone's life when they're at this beautiful moment of their life or sometimes it's a really hard moment of their life um and like all of healthcare in general is is getting to be there in those moments for sure but uh I I think that you're right it does take a special person uh to to want even to do some of that stuff and to want to give up your weekends, give up your holidays, give up your nights, give up time with your family, time that you could be doing other things. I mean, sometimes over the winter, I don't ever see the sun. <laughs> we get to make a huge difference in a way that some people don't even realize. And it's not just, you know, the nurses. The nurses are really important, don't get me wrong, but everybody that's in healthcare. From the social workers that get you your paperwork and help you find out what life is going to look like out in the community. The doctors that are there, uh, our doctors do, uh, or nurse practitioners rather, do 24 hour shifts. So they're there for 24 hours watching your baby. and all the people in between the people that come in we have this wonderful woman who comes and cleans our units so good and we have her to thank for keeping a lot of those germs away from our babies and stuff like that the security guards that keep everybody safe i mean it's such a huge team in healthcare and i am so lucky to be a part of a team
4: that is so passionate about what they do do you have anything else that you are dying to say that you want the world to know about being a NICU nurse? You, you make a difference.
6: If you're out there listening and you feel like you don't, or you know, maybe nobody's thanked you today. Thank you for what you do. Uh,
4: you're important and you matter and you are changing lives. Thank you for listening to Madison's Backbone on the local news segment today. I'm Riley and I'm here with Jen. And if nobody nobody's has thanked, thanked you, you today, today thank, thank you. you.
1: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather
0: guru, Rob McClure. Well, we didn't uh, quite get the sort of snow, including snow squalls, that I was anticipating yesterday, at least here in Madison, but just to the east from, um, oh, eastern Dane County over into Dodge and Jefferson and Walworth counties and areas east of there. Enough snow did come down to actually whiten the ground and show up on visible satellite returns this morning. Amounts are generally below about two inches west of Waukesha, but east of there, a vertical enhancement from the upper 20-degree arctic air blowing over 50-degree lake waters produced some prodigious bouts of convective snow as you got over towards the Lake Michigan shoreline, uh, where winds above ground level achieved just enough of a northeasterly fetch Uh, during the afternoon to bring those snow squalls inland a little bit. Four inches or more was actually recorded in uh, some spots in uh, Milwaukee County. We did get some convective snow showers going here, too, in the afternoon yesterday, producing uh, plenty of wind, but otherwise not much in the way of snow beyond uh, just flurries, given the drier, colder environment here. Uh, Incidentally, we ended October today, or yesterday, uh, 12 degrees below normal for the uh, day. Uh, But the month as a whole was warm as Octobers go, um, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit above normal overall. Uh, It was also slightly drier than normal here by about 7 hundredths of an inch. Uh, And November's going to start dry as well. Uh, There looks to be little opportunity for precipitation really of any kind out through at least Saturday. And whatever may come down in the couple of week systems that will be passing Sunday and Monday uh, doesn't look to amount to much. And you can see some of the reason for this, if you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have linked up at the top of the WORT weather webpage this evening, up in the featured graphics. On that three-day image, you can see the large upper trough, which covers much of the country now between the Rockies and the East Coast. Deepening over the last day or so, but also gaining some eastward momentum as yesterday's uh, additional surge of Arctic air drops down through Wisconsin and the plains from Manitoba and swings eastward from there into the eastern Great Lakes. That eastward motion in the overall pattern is allowing a modest upper ridging to press east uh, eastward ashore off the Pacific and across the Great Basin, and it will continue to work in this direction over the coming days, eventually producing a generally zonal jet stream pattern with the northern branch of the jet coursing eastward across the Canadian border region as we get out into the weekend of next week zonal uh, upper air patterns like that tend to limit wave development between the warm and cold air on either side of the jet so we've got no major storms in sight for the coming uh, week or 10 days or so the weaker waves that will be passing and we'll have one coming past us saturday the way it appears and another sunday into monday uh, those will have only limited moisture to work with given that the uh, arctic high-pressure cell that came southward down the plains behind yesterday's storm, and you can see this in the yellow isobars that are analyzed on that water vapor image, the uh, that blob of uh, dry rightward, rightward circulating arctic air is sitting now splayed out basically from southwest Texas a couple of thousand miles up through the St. Lawrence Seaway, so no uh, return of any Gulf moisture anytime soon. There will be a small bit of Pacific moisture that will get carried east with uh, these two waves that are coming but uh, on this passing weekend, so we may not stay completely dry through it, but any precipitation, uh, and it'll be in w- form of rain this time, should be minimal. So anyway, back to a rather uneventful forecast for the coming days. Tonight, uh, passing high clouds ge- uh, generated by low-level warm advection uh, up the plains to our west, but... Uh, Drifting eastward in the mid to upper level winds. Uh, Those clouds will continue to pass through the overnight, perhaps uh, thinning a little more as we get on towards dawn. Temperatures will drop uh, only into the upper 20s on light southerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour overnight. Tomorrow, passing high and mid level clouds will again cut into our uh, temperature rise, but continued southwesterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour will take temperatures into the lower, uh, perhaps mid 40s. Clouds may, again, thicken then a little more as we go overnight into Friday with temperatures holding in the mid-30s on lighter southwesterly winds. And Friday, uh, continued southwesterly winds on the lead side of this first wave will take temperatures towards 50 degrees, despite uh, additional cloud cover that day as well. Uh, ceiling should remain fairly high while a weak cold front kind of veers winds a little more westerly and northwesterly later Friday. No precipitation with that, I don't think. Uh, we'll see passing clouds overnight as temperatures drop to the mid-30s on lighter, more northerly winds. And Saturday, the winds will be uh, backing lightly south again, and temperatures should again reach uh, 50 degrees or so with thickening cloud cover again later in the day. And a sprinkle or two of rain is possible at that time. Uh, otherwise, we'll hold around 40 or in the upper 30s through the overnight with low 50s again. On Sunday, with more westerly winds that day, uh, better rain chance uh, looks to be on the cards with that second wave as we go overnight into Monday. Uh, at the station on Bever Street down here, currently the temperature is 38 degrees. The dew point temperature is 18. Uh, we've got overcast up at about 10,000 feet over the station. Winds are out of the south at 9 miles per hour, and the barometer is at 30.17 inches of mercury and falling.
1: It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to November 1969, when the city, state, and university all cracked down on sex and drugs— A legendary folk trio played for free on campus, and the queen of the bootleggers had her last call. Stu Levitan has the news from 54 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s.
7: All the years come on They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, November 1969. On the 2nd, the Sears Roba Company on East Washington Avenue is among the company stores nationwide to start a two-month test of opening on Sundays. Stores won't open until noon, so workers can attend church, and close at 5 p.m. On the 6th, the first budget from Mayor William Dyke, who campaigned on cutting city spending. He seeks to lay off 70 city employees, including 24 firemen, close fire station number four at the corner of Randall and West Dayton Streets, prohibit city snow removal outside the normal 40-hour work week, eliminate lifeguards at city beaches, delay the start of the State Street Mall, adopt a $9 auto registration fee, and double the $3 hotel room tax. The City Council does not signal support for Any aspect of the mayor's proposal. On the 25th, the council enacts a new obscenity ordinance banning the topless dancing now featured in several city night spots and requiring stores to keep adult magazines in an area where persons under 17 can't enter. Reverend Richard Pritchard proposes a city commission patterned on the Equal Opportunities Commission to review questionable material and quote, help keep people away from temptation. Second Ward Alder Gordon Harmon supports the proposal, saying, Would you want your daughter to dance naked before these people? That's what's going to happen without immediate adoption. As a UW student in the mid 1930s, Gordon Harmon was part of a campus vigilante group of athletes and fraternity men called the Silver Shirts. One night in May 1935, the group busted up a meeting of the left wing Lead for Industrial Democracy in the Law Building and dragged several participants all the way down to the lake, wherein they tossed them. On the 26th, Campus Drive opens, taking about 15,000 cars a day off University Avenue by providing non stop driving from Babcock Drive to Farley Avenue and University Bay Drive. The $4.5 million project. Phase two of the expansion adopted in 1961 was funded at a referendum in 1966 and begun in 1967. The third and final phase will start next year, six lanes out to the Blackhawk Drive overpass just west of Seago Road. In late November, the East Senior High Student Senate votes against participating in the Elks Club $2,500 scholarship contest, until the clause restricting membership in white males is stricken from the club's national charter. We can't morally cooperate, student president Dix Bruce says of the decision to forfeit the chance to compete for the scholarships. The West High Student Senate quickly follows suit. On campus, on the 5th, the State Assembly gives overwhelming approval to a bill to abolish the UW Department of Protection and Security and put the Madison Police Department in charge. The measure was introduced earlier this year during the black study strike, but was pushed now as a way to combat campus drug traffic. A week later, PNS officers start regular patrols through Memorial Union. On the 14th, fed up with sex, drugs, and protests, the Regents reinstate curfew for female students and raise the minimum wage at which students may live in unsupervised housing without parental permission from 20 to 21. Regent President Dr. James T. Nellon calls it, quote, a vote against the permissiveness that is going on in universities. A former football star, Nellen was also in that 1935 mob wearing his varsity sweater. Over the strong opposition of President Fred Harvey Harrington and Chancellor Edwin Young, the Regents vote 7-3 to, to give freshman women under 21 a curfew of midnight on weeknights and 2 a.m. on weekends. Cross-gender visitations, in housing units where it is allowed, will be limited to the hours between noon and midnight on Friday and Saturdays and noon and 10.30 on Sundays. Regent Maurice Pash. The Madison attorney, who is now the sole Democratic appointee on the board, cites, quote, promiscuity and immoral behavior as grounds for the new restrictions, which take effect next fall. Regents endorsing the new restrictions claim overwhelming support from parents. Delayed a year by strikes and shortages, the grand opening of the Humanities Building is celebrated from November 15th to the 23rd, by four formal dedication programs and a series of recitals and lectures. Due to unfavorable construction bids, the Regents eliminated from the massive building several architectural features, including significant amounts of trim and decorative plaster, stone entrances, and a sculpture garden in the interior courtyard. On the 16th, President Harrington starts a two-month leave of absence and vacation to India and Egypt, accompanied by his wife, under a so-called Tired President grant from the Danforth Foundation. In protest news, on the 13th, Peter, Paul, and Mary entertain thousands at the Dane County Memorial Coliseum. Then the legendary folk trio comes to the University Catholic Center on Lower State Street to perform another full set at a crushingly crowded midnight vigil for the moratorium. At both shows, they urge fans to join the moratorium in Washington that weekend, and many do. Public school students can observe the Vietnam moratorium on the 13th and 14th as an excused absence, the Board of Education decides, provided they have their parents' written permission. But the Board does not authorize any special war-related programming, claiming such efforts proved too disruptive during the moratorium in October. On the 14th, The Dow Chemical Company announces that it has lost the government contract for manufacturing napalm and has ceased its production. What the SDS protests of 1967 did not accomplish, defense procurement does. On the 18th, ROTC reports that freshman enrollment has dropped from 279 last fall to 125, and that overall enrollment has dropped from 751 in 1968 to 550 in 69. On the 19th, about 500 SDS supporters stage a quick orderly march, from Bascom Hall to the Army Mathematics Research Center, to the Army ROTC Building on Land and Drive, across University Avenue to the Air Force ROTC offices in the Mechanical Engineering Building, and back. Their only infraction some jaywalking. And an era in the history of Madison hospitality industry ends on the 26th, when Jenny Justo Bramhall and her husband Art closed their supper club at 3005 University Avenue. During the Prohibition era, Justo was convicted several times of liquor law and probation violations for running a speakeasy so popular with the college crowd, they called her the Queen of the Bootleggers. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And just a reminder, this is a largely volunteer-produced news show, If you so if you want to get involved in radio or have ever thought about it, give the station a call at 256-2001 during business hours. It's a lot of fun. Your headline writer this evening was Gigi royko Maurer. Special thanks to feature contributors Riley Cutright and Stu Levitan. Ken Brady sat in on engineering duties this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast and Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.